0: And uh, if I can extend with um, alongside Pat and Catherine, a warm welcome. I'm Tim, I'm the vicar here. Uh, it's really good to see you this evening. Whether you've been coming for years and years or whether you're here for the first time, then uh, a really warm welcome. We Just while you're finding this, I'm going to read a little story that Jesus told. But um, before that, we're in a little mini-series. This is Lent, the uh, first Sunday in Lent. And we're looking at some disciplines for Lent to uh, establish a rule of life. For us so that we can stand strong against some of the prevailing winds of our 21st century sort of cultural worldview uh, that can cause us, if we're not careful, to drift. Uh, So we're looking to stand firm. The, The metaphor I employed last week was that God, in a sense, calling us, we believe here, and equipping us as we encourage one another to do this, to be thermostats rather than thermometers. So a thermometer, just it, all it does is just record the current temperature, whatever it is, but a thermostat says this is what the temperature ought to be. It, it kind of regulates the temperature for the future. It sets the tone, it sets the flavour. Uh, and so that is what we are trying to be, as we, we gather here, we encourage one another, we gather in our small groups to encourage one another, and then we get out into our places of work, like Ben and his insurance company, you wherever you work, staff room, common room meeting rooms to be thermostats. So we're looking at um, the four G's over these next four weeks, um, uh, gold, this evening I want to speak about uh, that, wealth, materialism, consumerism, what lies behind that, um, girls or guys, the kind of whole, where, we, are we, where are we with the whole sex, sexuality, relationships thing, uh, Glory. Ambition, drive, and again, what's behind that? How can we live well in an ambitious city? And uh, grog, not necessarily in these order, by the way. Grog's a little bit contrived, but it's just to kind of get it into the 4Gs. The drinking culture that so many of you will be well acquainted with. How can we live pure lives for God without being geeks and nerds? Uh, You know, we're kind of in the world, but not kind of of it in that sense. So that's the vision for these next few weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, exciting plans for afterwards the summer, but we'll, we'll let you into them in due course. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Short word of prayer as we sit under this teaching tonight. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would so fashion our hearts and minds to receive your word and your teaching and your truth. That your Spirit would show us who we truly are in relation with you and in relation with the things around us. That your Spirit would bring sweet conviction. As well as inspiration, encouragement, that your spirit would show us this evening how to live differently, so that our lives make a difference for those around. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Uh, the 18th century philosopher and economist Adam Smith is perhaps best known for his treatise, "The Wealth of Nations." And uh, in this um, kind of, well, book, I guess, this, this essay, he, he sets out how the world can prosper. And it's a kind of seminal work, um, and it's a work of its time, as I, I hope I'll attempt to, to demonstrate all but briefly this evening. Because he basically talks about the importance of self-interest. He says that self-interest is not necessarily a bad thing. Because um, the inevitability, the outflow of, of self interest, working for oneself, accruing for oneself, is that there'll be an inevitable overflow that will bless others. So, is, for example, the, the baker is busy baking bread to make a living so that he can look after himself and his family. But the, the outflow of that is he's making bread, which he can sell so that you can eat. I often think, oh, oh, what a lovely baker, making bread for everyone else. And Adam Smith says, no, what really is driving him is he needs to survive. He's looking after number one. But in looking after number one, he's he's blessing others. This is what he says in um, an excerpt in The Wealth of Nations. He said, it's not from benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves. Not to their humanity, but to their self-love. And never talk to them of our necessities, but of their advantages to us. That a degree of self-interest, Adam Smith argues, is actually what makes the world go round. The wealth of nations. And he talked, although this phrase never actually occurs in um, In The Wealth of Nations, it's kind of one of those things that sort of, it it just came into being, like an urban myth, but this idea of an invisible hand that is mysteriously at work to ensure that all the goods and things that are produced and manufactured are shared around sufficiently, if, if not equally, at least sufficiently. David Hume, who's a a Scottish philosopher around about the same time, talked about um, self-interest being the spur to industry. This is how uh, a a new and emerging industrialised nation, industrialising world, works for the benefit of all. Adam Smith was a, a great philanthropist. When he died he was a wealthy man, but when he died he bequeathed much of his wealth to a range of good causes. He believed, uh, in, alongside the sort of invisible hand, he also, it went that goes hand in hand with what he called an empathetic energy of humanity. In other words, there's, there's something about us that wants to do good for the other, that wants to serve the other, to ensure that the society and community in which I live also flourishes. So self-interest looking after oneself, accruing, we might say, gold. Smith argues, not such a bad thing. But I wonder what Smith would make of the culture in which we live today. I wonder what his take would be on 21st century London. Because I wager that over those two, three centuries, we've lost sight of the invisible hand. We've lost sight of that sense of my needing to rely on community and community relying on me. We've become individualized, atomized. And when self-interest is detached from the invisible hand, I think I'd want to say, I'm not sure whether he was a believer or not, but of the benevolence of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God interacting in our lives, when self-interest loses touch, it quickly slides into greed. And whereas self-interest could be argued to be good, greed, forgive me, Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, greed is not good. I just, this is just in this week's edition of The, the Week as a kind of compendium of the, the news. I often go to turn to the last page. It's called the last word for some kind of uh, article. This is uh, Richard Gordon, sorry Richard Godwin, in, in the Times, and he visited a property developer called Bruce Makovsky, uh, who's he, he's interviewing him on the sun deck of his 250 million pound mansion that he spent four years building. It's number 924 Bel Air Road. If you're ever in the area. 38,000 square feet on four levels, complete with 12 bedrooms, 21 bathrooms, an infinity pool, spa, bowling alley, cinema, £30 million worth of luxury vehicles, and a 270-degree view from Santa Monica to the San, San Fernando Valley. It's the most expensive residence ever to be listed in the United States. But it's just about to be overtaken by a property called The One. The clue's in the name, isn't it? $500 $500 million. It's uh, so a residence being built down the road. Uh, it's 105,000 square feet. It's twice the size of the White House. The master bedroom alone is 5,500 square feet. Contains five swimming pools, a casino, a nightclub with a VIP area. Brackets. The, the uh, editor asks, what kind of ego would wish to rope off a VIP area in their very own home? Self-interest for the sake of others, but greed—I I know that's an extreme example. Greed is not good. But I want to—I want to argue that we've slid into a culture of greed in general. It's one of the prevailing winds. It's—it's it's the current, if you like. That if we don't watch out, it just takes us down its stream. I, and I want just for the next few minutes to—to to offer. And again, you can resist this. You you may disagree with me. I I hope, in a sense, this will will grate a bit so we can kind of work with it in our twos and threes, in our accountability groups, in our life groups. But I think this is what's happened over the last few centuries, and it's been accelerated, I think, more recently in the last two or three generations. We've moved from the forces of industrialization that meant that the 18th, 19th, early 20th centuries were were marked by production and again there was much of that empathetic energy going on so we we mass produced so that as many people as possible could enjoy the fruit of production but as industrialization has matured as we've we've reached something of a peak of all that we can create and produce and as we've slipped from self-interest that is benevolent into greed, not a, a, a means, but production as an end in itself. We've we found ourselves in what Graham Cray, who's a former uh, bishop of Maidstone, describes as the twenty-first century's religion: consumerism. We've gone from production to consumerism, the twenty-first century religion. I'm. I'm Dean of a number of churches in the Hammersmith and Fulham area. It's about 19 Anglican churches, various other Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal churches that meet. They uh, no doubt have had uh, at least one, if not more, services like we do on a Sunday. But I wager that the other centres of religion that have been open for business today, shopping centres and of course the great cathedral at Westfield, I'd wager that they've had more people worshipping at their shrines than all the churches in this area put together. If you, if you want to take issue with Graham Cray that consumerism is the 21st century religion, then bunk off church on a Sunday and go up to Westfield and see for yourself. See how consumerism preaches. It masks greed and it infects the soul. I kind of want to, I want to out it because it's subtle and it's secret. Uh, it's like a current that you just look on the water. You, you, you're in a boat, you're on the water. You, you don't realize what's underneath. There's a current taking you. There is a current that impacts all of us unless we are aware of it and look to set sail against it. Let, let's take, let's take the, the shopping malls and the supermarkets particularly the, the shopping mall at Westfield, do you notice how once you're in, you're kind of in a sort of almost a maze-like labyrinth. There aren't loads of windows pointing you to reality outside. You're sort of ushered into the shrines where there's a clear liturgy. Things are displayed tantalizing at eye level. They've thought about how to arrange each boutique and shop. Adverts Preach. You, you, uh, you're listening to me today, this is maybe the one and only sermon you'll hear in the week, perhaps you'll download one or two others, listen to something else. But consumerism will send out its preachers, and they will send messages to you on a constant, constant basis. I mean, sitting in the tube, and there above you, are banners and pictures as you're waiting for the bus. Uh, on posters and hoardings, as you're looking at a screen it pops up. Always looking to entice you, to seduce you, that's how greed through consumerism works. How many of us have walked into a shop, just we're just going to browse, and we've ended up buying something we had no intention of buying when we first went in the shop? That's because consumerism is at work, engaging with us and we need to be aware. Here's how the adverts work. What I want to do is kind of expose, so that when we see how it works, oh yeah, okay, I can see how this is going, I, I, I don't want to get lured in. Adverts work, uh, 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 there are two things going on at the same time. First of all, the advert says, you're not satisfied. Adverts basically work to promote dissatisfaction. They hold up an an image, in effect, indirectly, they hold up an image of, of something that you have or you are that isn't quite good enough. The watch that you have on your wrist, for example, it doesn't quite match up with this one here, or the shirt that you're wearing, or the shoes that you're wearing, or the bag that you sport, or some kind of accessory. It's nice, had it a while now, look at this one, or that one you go oh that looks so good the phone that you have that works perfectly well and has a myriad of functions oh but now there's another one that has even more functions that can work even quicker thinner or bendy and you think oh I haven't got a bendy phone (laughs) I'm dissatisfied with my rigid phone there's a bendy one on offer And subtly, subtly, they promote dissatisfaction. I don't know what your weakness is. I'm, I'm pretty cool on all of those things until it comes to outdoor gear, mountaineering gear. And then I'm a sucker. Suddenly all my gear is just second rate compared to what's just come out on the market. That's my weakness, I confess it. What's yours? Consumerism is out to find that little weak spot and then poke it. Dissatisfaction. And then secondly, what the adverts offer is joy. You, you don't have to put up with what you currently have. You could have this, or that, or the other. And that's where consumerism is at its most seductive. Because essentially the lie that it peddles is this. All that glitters is gold. Have the gold. And you will glitter. Consumerism lies to you. If you, if you have this, if you consume that, if you have all the gold here and now, you will be fulfilled, satisfied, the happiest person on earth. It's interesting the uh, article that I'd only just read today. Uh, it concludes like this, the, the uh, guy, um, Bruce Mikowski, he says, are you enjoying hanging out here? Could this be your happy place? And the writer says, I haven't the heart, or frankly, the courage to say that no, I cannot imagine being happy at 924 Bel Air Road. I can imagine bowling a few 10 pins for a while or listlessly strumming the diamond encrusted Telecaster before at, looking out at the haze over the Pacific. But it's lonely up here, like a hotel where all the other guests have departed. Soulless. We, uh, we were, those of us who were here a few weeks ago, the previous series, we were looking at the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, doesn't he, don't store up for yourselves gold on earth, treasure he calls it. Treasure on earth, why? Because wrath and moth and rust will destroy it. Thieves will break in and destroy it. It's so insecure-making. It doesn't last. Instead, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where thieves can't break in, where wrath, moth and rust can't destroy. See, consumerism says, if you have this now, this will... This will say something about you. You you wear this jacket or those shoes or drive that car or live in that house. You, You adopt this or buy into this lifestyle and this will say who you are. I shop, therefore I am. The dictum of the 21st century consumerist individual. And Jesus wants to say our identity is Locked and wrapped and rooted in somewhere else and someone else. Store for yourselves. Interesting, he talks about storing up for ourselves. But store for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where wrath, moth, I keep getting that wrong, moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Today I want to suggest that so many of uh, our friends, colleagues, m- maybe... Some of us are in the thrall of consumerism. Three things about consumerism. Number one, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. Greed is not good. Why? Because what consumerism encourages us to do is to make a good thing. And by the way, I'm not decrying the need for clothes or for food, clothing, housing, all these kinds. We need things. We need things. But consumerism encourages us to turn good things into God things. They turn us into idolaters. We idolize stuff. We idolize gold. And the thing about Idolatry is this. Tim Keller, he, in his, he's written a book on idolatry. And, and his definition of idolatry is this. It's when we make something, we look to something or someone to give us what only God can give us. When we look to something to give us what only God can give us. Think of retail therapy. Huh. I mean, the clue's in the name. Therapy, or I I need some help, I need someone to help me so I'll shop, I'll go and buy something and what effectively I'm doing is I I don't feel good about myself, I've had a bad day lousy wee, I've just split up from whatever I I know, I'll go and buy myself a new shirt a new top, a new bag there's something about it, oh yeah, look at that bag look, that's so good, looks so good on the model on the mannequin, yes I I get it, yeah, this will be really good I exchange this, this power, I give away money give away stuff of value, but I'm going to get something of value. This is going to make me feel better. I'm looking for pleasure, for a sense of worth, for a sense of identity from a piece of leather or a piece of fabric. I, my heart is is turning it into an idol, into a God thing. I'm looking for it to do for me what only God can do. Ultimate pleasure, ultimate delight, ultimate worth, ultimate significance only come from the one who made us and knows how we tick. A piece of leather or a piece of cloth simply can't do that. And if we find ourselves tempted to think that they do, we're in the thrall of consumerism. It doesn't satisfy. Greed cannot satisfy. It only leads to a thirst for more and a hunger for more. Just look at the way in which industrialization has has developed. About a 100 years ago, mass production was um, on a huge scale. So Henry Ford, famously when he produced the Model T Ford, one of the sort of first mass-produced prototype cars early last century, and his famous uh, quote kind of got, you know, it's like a sort of his sort of dictum almost, you can have any colour as long as it's black. In in other words, you don't have much choice. It's model T Ford, here it is, it's black, and and that's it. So take it or leave it. And everyone's like, oh, how fantastic, we've got a car to drive. Fast forward to last year, and we uh, our car we drove, we basically run it into the ground, and we, we needed to replace our car. And so we ended up, a bit of research, we ended up getting a good old safe, Forward focus. <sighs> Here's the thing though. Do you know you can get 37 different types of forward focus? We've gone from mass production to individualized, personalized production. We'll, we'll, we'll fit it just for you. Do, you. do you not like the tailgate? We'll change it. Do you not like the gear thing where it is? We'll change it. You don't like the sort of layout of the car, the design, the facials, all that? You, we'll, 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 what do you want? Choice is good, but consumer choice actually leads to anxiety. You see, it, with so much choice, all personalized on, on me, I begin to worry whether I've got, well, in this case, the right Ford Focus. I mean, here I am driving this Ford Focus. It seems okay, but I had 30 other, 36 other versions to choose. Maybe this isn't the, quite the right one. Or this shirt, I think it's okay, but does it quite fit? I wonder whether I could get another one. Have I got the right choice? Have I made the right choice? And so I kind of get consumer anxiety builds up because I've focused on gold instead of the one who is the source of all the gold. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. And deep down, deep down, you and I, we know that. Our souls, that the bit that makes us us, we know that we're not meant to live and be satisfied by, by treasures on earth. That God created us to live for and invest in treasures in heaven. Consumerism doesn't satisfy, briefly. Number two, consumerism demeans us. As consumers, we become objects to be targeted by uh, a merchandising brand or organisation by the adverts. We, we become depersonalised rather than people to be valued and nurtured. Nurtured, We're just a, a target audience, a target pitch. It, it demeans us. And it destroys community. Just think about how, this, how, how industrialization, productivity, consumerism has worked out. See we buy stuff that doesn't satisfy and so we need to buy more. How often do these things, obsolescence is built into so much productivity now. Things are designed to run out so that we will want more. Things are designed not to be absolutely perfect so that we won't quite be satisfied with this and we'll need the next one. But in getting the next one, we need money. Consumerism relies on wealth. So what's that doing to the poor in our society? You see, if if I am what I wear or I am what I live in or if my identity is wrapped up in gold, and I can't get gold, I'll steal it. You talk to the local police about crime rates. If I can't steal it, then I'll become bitter and resentment. And if I can't have it, then you can't have it either. Again, talk to the local police about the stats around vandalism and violence to property. It robs us and it robs society. There's, there's quite a lot of debris in the wake of all that glitters in consumerism. Thirdly, so it, it doesn't satisfy, it destroys us, and it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. Jesus told this story here, we've just read it, about a, it's a, it's a young guy who was brilliant at sports at school, in fact he was captain of cricket, and uh, he did so well he got into uh, Oxbridge did a fantastic degree, got a first, even though no one saw him in the library. He was one of those guys who's incredibly good-looking, girls flocking around him, he's so popular and suave. You know, it's the kind of guy you sort of, you said you liked him, but deep down you didn't really. He's just so envious. He walks into a city job, he kind of earns a six-figure salary in no time. He's one of the youngest to be promoted to the board. He's got an amazing house, an incredible wife, his kids are all immaculate. He's got another house in the country and a yacht moored up in the Seychelles. He gets to mid-late 40s and he thinks, hey, look, I've cracked it. I goes, yeah, what a guy. we Will go, what an amazing guy. Look at that. What's his secret? He's like, you know what? I've, I've kind of done it. I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to retire. Retire early and just enjoy it all. And that very same day in the evening, the pains in his chest are severe. And by the time they get into hospital, he's dead. And Jesus says, that of someone like that, God says, you fool. What was all that about? You invested in the here and now. You didn't invest in the future. This is how it will be, Jesus says. For those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. God. doesn't pay. Life does not consist, verse 15, in the abundance of our possessions. Now look, as an antidote, and I'm coming into land and then we're going we're gonna to worship the God. All things come from you and of your own do we give you, the prayer book says. He is the source of all things. He has all the silver and all the gold, one of the prophets says in the Old Testament. So we worship him. And we worship him recognizing, as I said before, we need physical things. We need material things. It's just the recognition deep down in ourselves that we also need more than just physical things and material things. I want to say to you too, I was uh, chatting to someone this morning and uh, I preached this this morning and in the morning congregation I was so grateful this person came up afterwards and uh, said, Tim the thing is I, I work in retail <laughs> and I love retail, I'm good at retail, I, that, that's when I come alive. And I, I want to say first of all actually in order to bring something of the kingdom of heaven truly to bear the kingdom of earth. You need to be in it to win it. So God bless you if you are in retail. God bless you if you are working in these areas that I've touched on. Because in a sense, in order to transform society, no, you're sending a vicar in to a sort of retail thing. Oh, what good am I? But if you send a retailer who knows and loves God into the retail industry, well, that's a different story. You've got traction, you've got credibility. As you look to live as salt and light, you look to live differently. How can we walk in an opposite spirit? How can we resist the siren seduction of consumerism? Sabbath. Sabbath. When God created the world in six days, He made everything. And then He rested enough, enough productivity, enough business, enough stuff. And before we get on with stewarding all that I've made, rest. As a Lenten discipline, maybe just a step back, withdraw. Get away. And in the getting away, return to the God who made us. You have given me everything I need. Did you notice in the story, by the way, that Jesus tells? Look with me. Verse 16, he told them this parable, this story, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. How come he takes possession of something that the ground produced? I think it's quite deliberate, the way that Jesus tells the story. He doesn't say a man grew some, he said the ground. Who does the ground belong to? Who made the ground? Who made the crops grow? How is it that the rich fool can have any claim on what was grown we're just stewards of stuff it doesn't belong to us ultimately you know I'm sure you know the story of the rich heiress who was uh, who died and it was the funeral big funeral everyone there and one of the uh, mourners at the funeral came up to the vicar afterwards and said oh um, how much did she leave and the vicar said everything they usually do Bill Gates, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, uh, actually uh, with a real philanthropic and and generous heart, but it's been estimated from his wealth that if you were to convert his wealth into dollar notes and then pile them all up and stick them under his mattress, he would have to parachute 16 miles to get out of bed. And when he dies, he can't take a single cent with him. It's not our stuff but look, we're just, we're just borrowing this while we're here on earth. So, so take a step back from the stuff and take time, Sabbath, on a regular basis, to focus on the giver. Let me just flick one um, little reference in 1 Timothy. If you want to turn with me, this is Timothy, uh, Paul writing to, to um, Timothy, page 1129. 1 Timothy 6. And this is the instruction uh, around people who love money. He says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. God wants us to take hold of the life that is truly life. The stuff that surpasses this life, that isn't of the here and now, alone. And so to walk in the opposite spirit, we we practice, for example, generosity. Generosity giving of ourselves. It may be giving money to different organisations, individuals, events. It may be as part of your spiritual discipline to set up a, a tithe, a regular giving here. We're so grateful to those who do that. There are forms at the back if God is nudging you to do that. But it may not be your possession. It may be giving in terms of your time. What if over Lent, every day, you were to just take the time to write a note to someone who has been influential or special or meaningful to you just a note to appreciate them to thank them perhaps an old school teacher or a friend you grew up with someone at uni a colleague at work i I tell you there will be 41 people who will be blessed the 40 that you write to they go oh that's great and you because you'll be stepping into the heart of god who doesn't accumulate but gives Maybe as part of your meditation over Lent, you can remember a time when you bought someone a gift. This is to help you to get a glimpse into the heart of God. Do you remember when you bought someone a gift and you watched them open it? You've been in on the whole secret. You buy this thing, wrap it up, you give it to them disguised in wrapping paper. Oh, what can it be? And they open it up. Ah. And it's that moment of ah. What does that do in you when you see their delight? Can you can remember? Can you remember that? Can you remember how it felt? Hold on to that feeling. That, that's, that's a glimpse into the heart of God. That's why God exists, in order to give. It's his delight to give. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so when we practice giving as a discipline, we, we enter into the joy, the delight, the heart of God. God. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. There's a guy called Steve Bunton who's written a book called um, The Christian in the Consumer Age. And with with this I finish. And one of the chapters in the book is simply entitled The Shocking Impact of a Contented Christian. The Shocking Impact of a Contented Christian. When we know who we are in Christ, when we know all the riches of heaven that are ours, when we, through the Spirit, can begin to claim them for ourselves now, to store up, Jesus talks about storing up stuff. When we store up the the stuff that cannot spoil or fade, that cannot be stolen, when we grab chunks of heaven and live it out through love, generosity, when we experience the true delight and the peace, that comes from knowing that I'm content in Him, I don't need any more stuff. We will live shockingly different lives that will shine as beacons, shine as lights in a world that's crumbling amid consumerism. Are you up for the challenge? We're knocked down one of the 4G's, gold is done, come on. Let's wage war on consumerism and greed. Let's live lives worthy of the calling that God has placed on us.